There are undoubtedly many mysteries that surround our world. Most have been solved, many have been debunked, but some remain controversial, where there is still no general consensus about what happened, how it happened, and who was responsible. Today, I'm going to bring you one of these stories, but it isn't just any other story. It is perhaps the most widely known and talked about mountaineering disappearances in history, where nine young Russian hikers embarked on what was supposed to be a challenging but fun expedition in the northern Ural Mountains of the then Soviet Union. An expedition that was filled with hope and aspirations but turned deadly in a matter of seconds. But before we get started, my name is Raphael Parvin, I am the True Crime Lawyer. On this channel we unravel dark mysteries, explore true crime, and delve into the bizarre and the wacky and the unexplained. If this piques your curiosity, I want you to summon the like button to the stand so I know that I have your full support. Please also press subscribe and turn on all notifications so you don't miss any of my weekly uploads. So, are you ready? Court is now in session. Igor Dyatlov was born on the 13th of January 1936 in Safedlov's Oblast, Russia. As soon as he was able to walk, Dyatlov's parents knew that their son was special. He possessed unique muscle dexterity, which was way advanced for his age, and he had a knack for problem solving. For example, whilst other children his age would see a toy racing car and rock it back and forth on the carpet, Eagle would look at his toy car and think bigger. And with that, he would take it a step further. A racing car could rock back and forth, yes, he thought, but a racing car could also navigate a course filled with tight corners and speed runs. And with that in mind, he would build complex racing tracks where he could manoeuvre these racing cars to the point of defying physics. This aptitude for engineering and heart racing human defiance would continue as he grew older, and he would ultimately find a new medium where he could utilise both of his gifts into something the world would never have seen before. After completing the 7th grade, he alongside his brother would embark on a new hobby, hiking. And they wouldn't do this alone. For them, it wasn't about selfish ambition, it was about collective achievement and friendship. So with them barely being teenagers, they would group together with students from the Ural Polytechnic Institute and go on these amazing, mind-boggling hikes. They would see things and they would do things that grown adults would never be able to. They were truly one with Mother Nature. But they weren't reckless, and they took safety very, very seriously. In fact, remarkably, Eagle constructed a makeshift portable radio for one of these trips in 1951. A time when such gadgets were rare, and most people would not even recognise what it was or what it was for. This radio was also self-designed and self-assembled, which for his parents, again, indicated that Eagle was a very special boy who could achieve very special things. As years went on, Eagle's tenacity and fascination with the wilderness and tinkering with electronics developed further and further. He continued to embark on hiking and camping expeditions and continued to develop radios and tools to communicate. He even designed a small stove that was portable yet very effective in heating and making tea and cooking food. But it wasn't until 1957 that Igor truly saw his purpose. Looking into a tiny cylindrical tube on the outskirts of his village, Igor's makeshift telescope was pointing towards a cloud of smoke. Covered by the smoke was a grey metal object that was very long and was pointing to the sky. Suddenly, it caught fire. Sparks were coming down from the bottom and then these massive fireballs appeared. 
Sitting at the edge of his seat, Eagle's heart was pounding. But it wasn't pounding because he was worried that something had gone wrong. No, everything was happening exactly according to plan. This was because the elongated metal object that Eagle was fixated on was a rocket. And what Eagle was witnessing was the Soviet Union successfully launching Sputnik 1, the first artificial Earth satellite. For the Soviet Union, this was the achievement of a lifetime. For Eagle, this was the calling he was waiting for. In all of the rise of the Soviet Union, Eagle's heart filled with vigour and boldness of a new Soviet generation. For him, this meant embarking on an ambitious 16-day cross-country ski trip to the Urals, the north-south mountain range that divided Western Russia from Serbia, and therefore, Europe from Asia. This winter expedition would crystallise his place in the world. With his hand around a bundle of paper, Eagle briskly walked towards a stern middle-aged woman. She looked at him and didn't bat an eye. However, she took the paper from Eagle and said that she would contact Eagle very soon. Apprehensive yet standing his ground, Eagle said okay and walked out of the building. What Eagle had done was submit a proposal to the Ural Polytechnic Institute Sport Club, which sponsored wilderness expeditions, an expedition that would put UPI on the map. Normally approvals for these proposals require a lot of time, there would be a lot of back and forth and a lot of amendments, changes and further checks before the higher-ups would give their tick of approval. This time, for whatever reason, the proposal was approved straight away. However, there was one caveat. In his initial proposal, Eagle had recruited and named his expedition team. Eight men and two women. Each named member of the group was an experienced Grade 2 hiker with ski tour experience and would be receiving Grade 3 certification upon their return. They were also aged between 20 and 24 and all had an affiliation with UPI. In fact, all of them were students and one was a recent graduate of the university and a dear friend of Eagle. However, when Eagle received final approval, a staff member pulled him aside. One other person would join their team a 38-year-old named Semyon Zolotarov. A veteran of the Second World War, with an old-fashioned moustache, stainless steel crowns on his teeth, tattoos, and with no wife or children, his circumstances, especially for that time, were unusual to say the least. But Eagle was not only an expert wilderness explorer and mechanical engineering genius, he was a kind-hearted man. Unusual circumstances and ill-conformity didn't matter to him, he was willing to take anyone underneath his arms. On January 25, 1959, that is exactly what he did. With 10 people now under his guidance and leadership, he was handed the route booklet and the group left Safodlov City and arrived by train at Ivdel, a town at the very centre of the northern province of Safodlov's Oblast, in the early morning hours of January 25. From there, they took a truck to Vizhai, a lorry village which was the last inhabited settlement to the north. As soon as they would leave this village, the real adventures would begin, and they would climb the slopes of Kohotlate Sickle. In the language of Ural's indigenous Mansi people, this mountain literally translates to Death Mountain. In the early morning of the 27th of January, they began their trek towards Otoriton Mountain. But that was when they met their first hurdle. One of the hikers, Yuri Yudin, although only 21 years old, collapsed. 
Even though Yuri was an accomplished hiker and explorer, he suffered from several health ailments, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect. With increasing pain on his knees and joints, it was clear that not only could he not continue, but that he was going to drag the rest of his team down. With a heart-wrenching decision, he hugged Igor and looked at him directly in the eyes and said that he was going back. With the expedition barely even starting, 10 became 9. Staring into the large engulfing mountains, Igor had a plan. Looking at Yuri, he said the group would venture towards the mountains. The weather was a little weary, so we said that they might have to pitch a tent near the edge of the mountain before forging forward. However, they would telegram the UPI Sports Club once they returned to Vizhai to give them the all clear. As Yuri turned to stare at Igor, he nodded. He knew Igor very well and Yuri knew that this would be the trek of the century. With a small fleeting feeling of jealousy and personal annoyance at himself, he continued to make his way down to the nearby village to get some assistance so he could finally head home. Within days he was back in his small but quaint house and sitting in front of a fire. Feeling much better and realising that despite his disappointment at not being able to continue the hike, he had made the right decision. Sipping a cup of tea, he leaned back on his chair and waited for the telegram from Eagle. Day after day, he waited, but no telegram arrived. He wasn't worried though. There are normally buffers within any expedition, so the lack of a telegram could just mean that there was a delay because of some non-urgent reason. The most logical reason being that there was an unexpected change to the weather, resulting in the group having to take a longer time to get back down the mountain. As an experienced mountaineer, Yuri took comfort in this knowledge. But as days turned to weeks, his optimism dwindled down. Soon it was clear something had gone wrong. With no telegram or method of communication, the families of the expedition grew very weary. Calling the university and the local bureau of the Communist Party, a search party was rapidly deployed. Initially, the first rescue groups consisted of volunteer students and teachers. However, they were immediately joined by a local police force and even the National Army, with planes and helicopters ordered to join the operation. Fighting blistering winds and low visibility, on the 26th of February, the search party found the first sign of the missing hikers, their tent. But as they continued to stare at the worn down khaki green tent, their initial excitement turned into disappointment and then to confusion. Kneeling to the ground, a member of the search party stared to the open flap of the tent and then paused. For one thing, the tent wasn't completely empty. At the bottom of the tent, there were nine backpacks, nine pairs of shoes and various personal items, including jackets and raincoats. Secondly, the tent had a deep gash through it. It was almost like someone was standing outside the tent and had dragged a knife through it. Almost like he or she was trying to get into the tent. But then the search party looked even closer. Yes, someone had cut open the tent, but it wasn't from the outside. As fiber analysis would later confirm, someone had cut open the tent from the inside. Now the question is why? Why would the hikers leave all their belongings in the tent? And then why would they cut open their own tent when they could have clearly and just as easily unzipped the tent open. As the members of the search party continued to grapple with this dilemma, other members looked around. Once more, their hearts started to pound with excitement and hope. Staring at the soft white snow, 
they saw faint traces of footprints. Footprints which appeared to lead to a patch of winter shrubs and trees almost 1.5 kilometers away. As they made their way towards the trees, one of the rescuers spotted something dark sticking out of a large cedar tree right at the edge of the patch of bushes. As he continued to look at this dark object, he noticed that all the lower branches of the cedar tree were all broken. He also noticed what he believed to be the remnants of a fire. But as the rescuer's eyes slowly panned to the dark object, his heart sank. The dark object was a body, but not just one body, two bodies. Laying face down on the snow lay 21-year-old Yuri Doroshenko. Alongside him, Yuri Krivonoshenko. As the congregation of people surrounded the bodies, there was a dawning sense of lost hope. Two dead bodies meant that this was not a rescue attempt anymore, it was a retrieval mission. But as the sadness crept over everyone, something else spawned. Confusion. Despite the freezing temperatures of the Ural Mountains, both Yuris weren't wearing any insulating mountain clothing at all. In fact, they were wearing the opposite. They were literally in their underwear. On top of that, their bodies were completely covered in scrapes and bruises. Doroshenko actually had a very large burn on the right side of his head, and on his foot, ears, nose and lips, they were all covered in blood. He also had this grey fluid coming out of his mouth. Later on, we would actually find out that this grey fluid is normally a sign that the body has experienced a strong force to the chest cavity, almost to suggest that someone or something had forcibly pushed Doroshenko with such force that it could have been fatal. As to Kravonoshenko, he had blackened fingers and third degree burns on his shin and foot. His autopsies would later reveal that he also had a piece of his own knuckle in the inside of his mouth. By the end of the day, the search party had found two more bodies. Zinaida Kolmogorova, who was one of the two women on the expedition, and the leader of the group, Igor Dyatlov. Compared to the other two Yuris, Zinaida was much better dressed, but she was also dressed kind of particularly. She had two hats, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, another shirt, and then another sweater with a torn cuff. On the bottom, she had trousers, cotton athletic pants, and ski pants with three small holes at the bottom. She also had three pairs of socks, but no footwear. Whilst the no footwear part is kind of strange, what might be obvious is that the multiple layering of clothes could only suggest one thing. Zinaida was freezing and was trying to do anything that she could to get warm again. But this also begs the question, why did the rescuers find her much further up the slope than the other two Yuris? And with that, why was she so far away from the base camp? Perhaps quite interestingly is that, like the two Yuris, she also had abrasions on both sides of her hands and bruises to her face. There was also another long bruise on the side of her body, which was consistent with a large rod-like force. Again, suggesting that someone or something had inflicted severe force on the body. As to Igor Dyatlov, he was found face up with both his fists clenched, and his body had been clearly manipulated after his death. Like all of the rest of the bodies that the rescuers found, Dyatlov had abrasions and bruises on the side of his ankles as well as cuts and bruises to his face. He was also missing an incisor in his jaw, almost like he got into a fist fight with someone. It would take another week for the next body to be found. This was the body of Rustam Slobodin 
and like Dyatlov, he was found further up the mountain on the long slope stretch leading back to the tent. He was wearing a sock on one foot and a felt booty on the other. Not only did he have bruises and cuts on his body, his autopsy also noted a fracture to his skull which caused hemorrhaging. And like the other bodies, it showed signs that it had been moved post-mortem. With that, four bodies remained. However, they continued to remain missing for months. It was only in early May, when the snow began to melt, that the four remaining hikers would be found. Scurrying along a white, snow-ridden, beaten path, a Mansi hunter and his dog were walking with intention. This was prime hunting season, and with the weather becoming more favourable, the hunter was optimistic that they could find a prized elk. As they continued walking forward, the hunter's dog started sniffing. Suddenly, his nose pointed down and he bolted forward. Struggling to keep up, the Mansi hunter thought that the dog had sniffed out the scent of a prized elk. But when he finally caught up, all that was before him was a white snowy structure near a group of dense trees on the bottom of a steep hill. Walking towards it, the Mansi hunter's eyes widened. It was a makeshift snow den. Located 76 metres from a tall and bellowing cedar tree, the Mansi hunter noticed that the floor was made of branches laid in a deep hole in the snow. Around it were pieces of tattered clothing that were strewn about. He immediately knew what he'd found. In a few hours, a swarm of search team rescuers made their way to the makeshift den. Digging through four metres of snow, they uncovered the four remaining victims. As the autopsies would later show, all four of the last remaining hikers had suffered catastrophic injuries. For instance, one of the hikers' skulls was fractured so severely that pieces of bone had been driven into the brain. Two other hikers had crushed chests with multiple broken ribs, and one even had a massive hemorrhage to the right ventricle of their heart. The medical examiner would later say that this type of damage was similar to what is typically found in victims of high-speed car crashes. But what is most shocking of all is that two of the hikers were missing their eyes. And worse, one of the hikers were not only missing their eyes, but they were also missing their tongue and parts of their upper lip. As to the clothing that was found inside the den, several pieces of clothing emitted very high levels of radiation. And a radiological expert testified that as the bodies had been exposed to running water for several months, the original radiation levels would have been much higher. With all nine of the hikers being found dead with serious and perplexing injuries, a criminal investigation was soon started. But this is where we need to pause the story. Look, until now, and based on the injuries suffered by the hikers, it was very clear that something out of the ordinary happened. When you normally think of hiking misadventures, especially in environments where there's a lot of snow, you think of people getting lost, or maybe they came across really harsh weather, and because of one or both of those things, they unfortunately perished. But under these circumstances, you would normally expect to find the bodies intact, and they would definitely be wearing winter clothing. I mean, you wouldn't expect to see semi-clothed bodies with severe bruising, lacerations and burns, and you definitely wouldn't expect to find a body with their eyes completely torn out. But this is exactly what the rescuers found, and that is what the autopsy showed. But, the official investigation found something completely different. It was led by a local prosecutor named Lev Ivanov, and on the surface it was quite thorough. You see, it included medical examinations, analysis of the recovered diaries and photographs, and inspections of the various scenes themselves. 
However, a lot of the findings, despite being technically plausible, seemed a little inconvenient. It was led by a local prosecutor named Lev Ivanov, and on the surface it was quite thorough. It included medical examinations, analysis of recovered diaries and photographs, and most importantly, the inspections of the various scenes themselves. However, a lot of the findings, despite being technically plausible, seemed a little too convenient. I mean, for example, the medical examiner's report concluded that there were no injuries that might have led to any of the deaths, even though one of the hikers had a fracture in his skull. The other injuries weren't seen as being substantial, and because of this, the medical examiner concluded that they all died of hypothermia. As for the official report, it simply concluded that the hikers died as a result of a compelling natural force. Now, as a lawyer, this statement is very, very ambiguous. It says a lot, and it also says very little. Compounding this, the Soviet government promptly classified the case as secret and sealed all related files, making them unavailable for public or independent scrutiny. Finally, the government closed off Dyatlov Pass to expeditions and hikers for three years following the incident. Looking at these deaths as a whole, there are so many variables at play, and when pulled together, it doesn't make clear sense. We have the ripped tent, the single-file walk down the mountain, the lack of clothing, including the lack of shoes, the horrific injuries with third-degree burns, and we even have radiation thrown into the mix. And to top it off, we have an investigation which, itself, was shrouded with a sense of secrecy and urgency. So the question is, what really happened? Now, there have been many theories that have been formulated to explain what happened at Dialov Pass. The first one, and one of the earliest theories, is that the local Mansi tribe had killed the hikers for stepping on their land, or perhaps they offended the tribe's people, and therefore they were slaughtered. The Mansi tribe are indigenous to the Ural Mountain area, and supposedly a chum, or dwelling, was found near the vicinity of the hikers' tent. A chum is a symbolic structure that was created at the time of a sacrifice. So, the theory goes, is that because the Mansi tribe would have had the best understanding of the land, they would have covered their tracks, and they could have intentionally staged the killings so that the crime could not be detected. Now, on the surface, there are merits to this theory, namely the ripped tent and the bodies being found with ill-equipped clothing. This suggests that the hikers may have had been startled and chased by a threat, and therefore they had to rush to escape. The injuries that they suffered could have also been as a result of physical harm. However, at the same time, the injuries suffered by the hikers are inconsistent with the medical report, which suggested that some of the injuries could not have been caused by a human. Albeit, that does not preclude the idea that other tools could have been used to inflict the damage. The other flaw is that the Mansi were not violent people. In fact, they were very well disposed to Russians after living with Russian and Soviet influences for generations. In addition, the Mansi hunters actually assisted in the search party, and the Mansi hunter was responsible for finding the last remaining bodies. And even if, hypothetically, there was a rogue group of Mansi people, why didn't they take any of the valuables from the tent? As we know, when the search party found the tent, everything was untouched, including expensive cameras, alcohol, clothes, and food. As to the idea that the hikers had wandered into a sacred vicinity or territory, um, that were protected by the Mansi people, well, this is also incorrect. The Dyatlov hikers were never on sacred Mansi property. 
there was no known Mansi religious significance to the area at all. In fact, the Mansi people didn't even place much value on the area because it wasn't that great for hunting because it was so barren and windy. And finally, the Chum, well, it's most likely was for the sacrifice of a moose, which they would have then used for food. And if you really want to support the human sacrifice idea, then why were the bodies found in different locations and why were some more injured than others? So this theory seems quite unlikely. There are two other theories which perhaps face more scrutiny than the Massey theory. The first is the Soviet Union government conspiracy. The Too Long Didn't Read version revolves around two members of the Dyatlov group, Zolotarov and Kravonchenko. For Zolotarov, the question remains on everyone's mind is why was a 37-year-old veteran of World War II attached to a group of young students and graduates? For Kravonchenko, he had only two years earlier helped clear up a radioactive leak at a secret Soviet nuclear facility. So according to this theory, is that both of these hikers and potentially a third hiker were working for the KGB and had joined the Dyatlov trek to rendezvous with CIA agents in the Ural Mountains. While handing over radioactive material and fake nuclear secrets, the Russians were supposed to take photos of the American agents. The theory goes is that the CIA operatives realized that something was going on and that led to a fight breaking out and the eventual massacre of the Dyatlov party. Again, I can see why there is so much scrutiny over this theory, but perhaps you can let me know if you think otherwise. The other theory, which is perhaps the most absurd of all, but is nevertheless a theory, is aliens. So in 1990, Lev Ivanov, the man who led the initial investigation into the incident, he published a sensational article claiming he'd been ordered to censor some of his key findings. In particular, the unusual char marks on trees near where the bodies were found, which in Ivanov's view, confirmed a source of heat ray that had been purposely aimed at some of the helpless hikers. His article also alleged that floating balls of light and other weird phenomena had been reported over the Ural Mountains in February. Now, Ivanov did not mince his words at all, saying that, based on the evidence gathered, the role of UFOs in this tragedy was quite obvious. Whether these supposed UFOs were of alien origin or experimental Soviet unions depends on which version of the theory you believe. Now, all these theories have clear flaws and they also require one to have a very open and livid imagination. However, there is one theory which perhaps isn't as exciting, but it is the most widely accepted. This is a slab avalanche theory. The reason why the group ripped open their tent and fled in what little clothes they had was because they were face to face with a slab avalanche. To provide some context, a slab avalanche is where a compacted block of snow slides down a slope when the underlying weaker snow gives way. So according to this theory, a combination of factors including mountain winds and a weakening of the mountain snow during the pitching of the tent led to this catastrophic avalanche. The thinking goes that once the avalanche hit, the group slashed their way out of the tent in panic, with some of them severely injured by the impact. Now, this would explain the broken ribs. The ones who escaped with mild cuts and abrasions helped the others flee, 
what they assumed was a danger zone for a full-scale avalanche. Whilst these members of the group did escape, they also had no shelter, clothing or food. As such, they then succumbed to the intense cold and with their injuries, they subsequently perished. Alternatively, all nine hikers may have escaped the crushed tent without serious injuries, which would explain why there were no tracks in the snow, which also suggests that people had been assisted or dragged away. Soon after, two of the hikers by the tree succumbed to the cold, three froze to death trying to get back to the tent, and four others died by the ravine. Therefore, some may have been badly injured or killed while trying to create a snow shelter. Finally, with all of them dead, the gruesome facial damage could have been the result of animal scavengers and decomposition. In 2019, Russian authorities announced new plans to revisit the incident, and in the following year, the inquiry pinned the hikers' deaths on a combination of an avalanche and poor visibility. As reported by the state-owned RIA news agency in July 2020, the official findings suggested that a ton of snow slabs or blocky chunks surprised the sleeping victims and pushed them to seek shelter at a nearby ridge. The force would have been enough to cause substantial physical damage, including enough to break ribs and skulls, and a snow slab could explain why the hikers ripped open their tent and fled without pausing to put on their shoes and coats. At the edge of the forest, perhaps they tried but failed to build a fire to stay warm, but by then, they would have known that they were in dire trouble. At some point, the group became separated as some hikers tried to find their way back to the tent to retrieve their belongings. With poor visibility, they soon lost sight of each other in the black night and succumbed to the frigid weather. The four remaining hikers wandered into the forest before falling into the ravine to their deaths. And their missing body parts? Well, they were potentially eaten by scavenging creatures or washed away by the stream below. So the question is, with two official investigations being conducted, albeit with the later actually providing way more clarity than the first, has the Dyatlov Pass mystery now been solved? Well, people still have their doubts. In response to the avalanche slab theory, some experts have claimed that the slope where the avalanche was supposed to have happened was not steep enough to actually cause a devastating avalanche of such magnitude. And if there was a so-called avalanche, well, where was the evidence? From the initial search, there was nothing to actually suggest that such an avalanche had taken place, because otherwise certain patterns and debris would have been distributed over a wide area. In addition, the bodies that were found, well, they were found a month after the event, but they were only covered in a very small shallow layer of snow. In addition, had the avalanche actually happened, the second party would have been swept away and they would have, have suffered more serious and devastating injuries. Not to mention the tree line in which a lot of the bodies were found against, well that would have been completely damaged. The other question is the footprint patterns. They were consistent with someone walking, not frantically running away from real or imminent danger. These questions and more remain in the back of many minds even till this day. As for the Ural Mountains, many people still travel the mountain passage that took the lives of the Diet Love 9. And, as you might have guessed, this passage was later named after 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov, who planned the ill-fated adventure for his friends. While the mystery will continue, this will always remain a story of nine friends who fought together against the force of nature. Whilst they didn't survive, their legacy will go on. 
So there you have it. This was the story of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Please let me know what you think in the comments section below. And also let me know what theory do you prescribe to the most? Or perhaps is there another theory that I didn't cover? Please let me know. If you haven't already done so, summon the like button to the stand so that I know I have your full support. Please also press subscribe and turn on all notifications so you can be part of the exclusive club that gets to see my videos as soon as they're uploaded. Also, my videos are available as podcasts on all major streaming platforms and I also do podcast exclusive stories so make sure you check them out. Links are down below. Finally, if you ever need to contact me or you want to share a story, you can do so on Instagram, Twitter or TikTok or under the username Raphael Parvin. I read all my DMs. So thank you so much for your time today and I will see you on the next case.